Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Romans, the first chapter, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for Jesus. And we just pray, Lord, as we have this opportunity to to dive in and see what you have to teach us today. We're grateful for that. And we just pray that this would not just be an intellectual exercise, but that these words from you would transform not only our minds, but our hearts and our lives for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. What do human beings need more than anything else? I asked Google that question and got a myriad of responses. Some were the basic survival type answers like food, water, sleep. Some of the answers were more philosophical, like fulfillment or freedom. Predictable, perhaps, responses from a human perspective. But what about God's perspective? I mean, the one who made us would have a more reliable view of what we need, right? Well, we learn from his word that first he is holy, and perfect, and all life comes from him, and he created us in his image to represent him and glorify him on this earth. But starting with the rebellion of Adam and Eve against his rule, our sin and disobedience have separated us from God and all of his eternal blessings, including life itself, the abundant eternal element of that word. Our minds and our hearts were corrupted and we became enemies of God, spiritually dead. And now, by default, after the fall, no one has a right relationship with him. Our relationship with him is broken and consequently our relationships with one another are broken. Our relationship with the rest of creation is broken. And the most important thing we need as human beings is to be restored to a right relationship 
with our creator God, to be restored to a right relationship with God. Because that need is not just something important for this life, but is essential for eternity. Therefore, the most important question for us to answer as fallen human beings is how? How do we become right with God? How can we, spiritually dead, sinful people, be restored to a right relationship with our perfect life-giving creator? In the early 1500s, a German priest named Martin Luther was plagued by that question. He labored to live in obedience to God as a monk beyond reproach. But no matter how hard he tried, he knew he could never achieve the perfect righteousness that the holy God demanded. He could never become right with God on his own efforts, and he was devastated. But he rediscovered the answer to this most important question, and he rediscovered that answer by reading Paul's letter to the Romans. It was in this book that we're starting today that Luther was blown away by God's answer to this question. God's answer was a truth that was proclaimed by the apostles and the early followers of Jesus, but a truth that has been, had been obscured over the centuries. And that truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That most important question of how we become right with God is answered in the gospel. That word gospel just means good news. Because in light of the bad news of our broken relationship with God, the God of life and blessing, in light of the certain judgment, the everlasting judgment that inevitably awaits us because of our sin, in light of that, there's good news about Jesus, who he is and what he did that answers that question of how we become right with God. And the book of Romans answers that question more exhaustively than any book in the Bible. Martin Luther later said this, this letter of Romans is really the chief part of the New Testament. And is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder it over too much, he says. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. John Wesley credits this understanding of Romans as the catalyst for the great evangelical revival of the 18th century. The author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, credits Romans for inspiring the great themes of his classic book. Here are just a few other statements from others. The reformer John Calvin. When anyone understands this letter of Romans, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. J.I. Packer the late author of the classic Knowing God, said this, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there's no telling what may happen. Finally, John Piper, Romans is the most important theological Christian work ever written. 
Christian scholars throughout the centuries have argued that Romans is the single most important piece of literature in the history of the world. That brings us to Orchard Bible Church. After studying the life and teachings of Jesus in Matthew's gospel over the last year, the pastor elders thought it appropriate that we study Romans as a church. We saw Jesus' life, death, and resurrection play out in history in Matthew. Now let's consider the meaning of those events in Romans with the prayer that we might all be transformed by this gospel of who Jesus is, what he's done, and why it's so important for us today. I invite you to follow along, please, in your own Bible as we go through these first seven verses today and the outline of today's sermon in your bulletin. So first, number one in your outline, who is this Paul, the preacher of the gospel? Verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. About five years after the events we looked at in the book of Matthew, the church consisted almost exclusively of Jewish people. And the church was spreading. But not all Jews were on board with this. Just like Jesus had enemies during his life, the early church had enemies as well. And Paul, or his other name Saul, was one of those enemies. He worked with the authorities to do everything in his power to stop the church. And he was a a force to be reckoned with. But all of that changed on the road to Damascus that we read about in Acts chapter 9. When he met the risen Lord Jesus who rocked his world forever. uh, Paul was confronted, he was converted, and he was commissioned. It was what is likely the most significant Christian conversion in church history. Paul became a servant of Christ Jesus. He switched sides in a way that mystified everyone involved. This word servant can be translated slave, which is closer to the meaning here. Paul is owned by Jesus. He takes orders from Jesus. He was also called to be an apostle. We don't have apostles today. This was a unique ministry for this time in church history. Apostles were those who had personally encountered Jesus and were handpicked by him to speak truths about him on his behalf. Before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples that when he went away, the Holy Spirit would come and instruct them in truths about him, about Jesus. Truths that they weren't ready to process at that time. Remember how confused the disciples were repeatedly throughout the life of Jesus as we saw in Matthew. Well, all that changed when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2, when their minds were enlightened to the significance of of who Jesus was and what he had done. So Paul, a late selection to be called an apostle, now also has the Holy Spirit. And as an apostle, he's an authoritative spokesperson for Jesus as a special commissioned messenger. And the message he has is this really good news, the gospel of God. In verse 7, we see he's writing to the church in Rome, why we call it Romans. And his purpose is to explain the gospel and its implications. One of the reasons Romans is unique 
is that Paul had never been to this church before. In other letters, he'd been to the church or knew the person. He was following up with churches or people he had spoken to. Things had come up where he wants to emphasize things. But when he first met them, he probably covered many of these basics of Romans in person. That's one reason Romans is so wonderfully exhaustive about the gospel. Now let's look at number two in your outline, the provenance of the gospel. I'm sorry, I'm deeply sorry about this word no one ever uses, but I desperately wanted to keep this letter P theme in my outline, so forgive me. Provenance just means source. In other words, where does this gospel come from? What is the source? Where did the gospel originate? Who came up with it? We see at the end of verse one, this is the gospel of God. Leon Morris says this, God is the most important word in this letter. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. The gospel did not originate in the mind of a man. This isn't something humans came up with. Paul didn't make this up. In fact, originally Paul hated it. He kicked and screamed against it. But even after his conversion, this gospel wasn't something Paul learned through a a series of teachings from a fellow teacher. In Galatians 1, he tells us he received it directly by revelation from Jesus Christ. Humans would never come up with this. And part of the reason for that is, from a human perspective, it's foolishness. I mean, just consider... The God of the universe, the great, majestic, mighty creator king, took on human flesh and died like a criminal. I mean, that's not impressive philosophy. That's not elite intellectualism. To the natural mind, it's folly. Related to that, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the gospel is also a stumbling block, in part because it chafes against the very core of human pride. The gospel says you are separated from God because of your sin. You stand under his condemnation and there's nothing you can do about that. We don't like to hear that, do we? I mean, tell me I can earn his favor somehow. I mean, tell me I have to climb Mount Evans 10 times in two days. Just give me that chance there wouldn't be enough room on the mountain for all the achievers. Tell me I have to do something really hard that God will credit me for. Something I can do to differentiate myself from other sinners. Tell me it's really hard, but I have to achieve it. Tell me anything, but don't tell me there's nothing I can do. Don't tell me I'm in the same boat as every other sinner. That's offensive. And many stumble over that. But that's the truth of the fallen human condition. And part of the reason the gospel is offensive. This comes from God. It can never come from us. He's the only one who could do anything about our situation. And the good news is that he has done something. All other religions, when you boil it down, say do this, do that. The gospel of God says it's done. The achievement was done by Jesus Christ, and we add nothing. 
The fact that the gospel came from God also means we cannot adjust it. It's not our right to do so. Water it down or change it in any way. The only thing we can do and must do is proclaim it, just like Paul. Lastly, the fact that this came from God also means it's not something new that just arrived on the scene. It was in the mind of God before the world began. And it was foretold long ago, thousands of years before Jesus was born. This is number three in your outline, the promise of the gospel. Look at the gospel of God, verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Those of you who were with us last year in our series of Matthew, I I hope you, you noticed how frequently Matthew pointed back to the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. Right off the bat, he starts with a genealogy, demonstrating how Jesus connects directly back to Abraham, to Judah, to King David, and so many others involved in the promises God had made then that Jesus now fulfills. In fact, Matthew uses that word a lot, doesn't he? Thus was fulfilled, and so was fulfilled by what was said by the prophets. In fact, Craig Blomberg argues in his excellent New Testament theology that the unifying theme of the entire New Testament is this concept, fulfillment. You cannot separate the gospel from the promises that were fulfilled. You cannot divorce the gospel from Israel and the promises God made to them about their king, their Messiah, the Lord, the promises of forgiveness of sins ultimately, fulfilling the types and the sacrifices, promises of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell them, enabling them to obey the law written on their hearts, promises of peace and unity among all of God's people, promises of justice for the oppressed, Promises of a kingdom with David's descendant reigning with perfect justice. And promises about a blessing that includes not just Israel, but other nations, the Gentiles. Promises that go all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Her great descendant that would crush the serpent's head. The one who would come and reverse the curse that has infected all creation. None of this Paul recognized, even though he knew his Old Testament well before his conversion, when he was persecuting the church. He was convinced Jesus was not, in fact, the Messiah, but an enemy of these promises. But after he met the risen Jesus, this fulfillment became the theme of his preaching. You read throughout the book of Acts, Paul's regular custom as he went into a town was to go to the synagogue and plead with his fellow Jews, arguing from their Hebrew scriptures that Jesus was their Messiah. And that brings us to number four, the person of the gospel. Verse three, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The good news is not some advice you need to follow. Unlike other religions, this isn't a code or some kind of philosophy you subscribe to. The gospel is about a person. The message of Christianity is good news about a person and what that person has done in history. And that person is Jesus Christ. 
Let's consider these titles or descriptors for who Jesus is in verses 3 and 4. And every one of them is important. He's the eternal son descending from David. He's the son of God in power. He's the Messiah or Christ. And he is the Lord. First, Paul says God's son descended from David. Doug Moo, very good Roman scholar, clarifies that this wording implies his pre-existence. This is God, the eternal son, who took on flesh and was born as a human, a truth that we just celebrated a month ago at Christmas. This eternal son is also Lord Yahweh in the Old Testament, God in the flesh. And as we've already considered, it was important for the fulfillment of prophecies that he was born in the line of King David. This connects to another title, the promised Messiah in Hebrew, or Christ in Greek. The most difficult descriptor because of the way it's, partly because of the way it's worded in English, is the Son of God in power. Something he was declared to be, it would seem, after his resurrection. It almost makes it sound like he wasn't the Son before, but now he is. But that's not really what Paul's saying. We need to understand how this title, Son of God, was understood from the Old Testament. The first part of verse 3, we see he's always been the eternal son of the Father, pre-existent God who became flesh. But the title Son of God has, has a rich history in the prophecies about the Messiah. He had to become human to fulfill those promises about David's descendant who was prophesied to be called the Son of God. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's promise to King David, God says of David's descendant, the king who would reign forever, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, son of God. We also see this in Psalm 2. God says this about the promised descendant of David. You are my son and today I've become your father. So Jesus was exalted to a position he didn't have previously. Because only as a man could he fulfill this role, as a human descendant of David that must do this. And there's an enthronement as king that happens as a result, as judge. So Jesus, by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection, has been appointed to this role. He's declared to be the son of God in power, enthroned to rule as king in this new age that has come. That's another important aspect to understanding this. The new age of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is contrasting two ages in history. The central event is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That changed everything. The time before that was according to the flesh, verse 3. The new age is described as according to the spirit of holiness, or the age of the Holy Spirit, verse 4. Paul writes throughout his letters about this new creation that's come in his resurrection, He's the first fruit. An age promised in the Old Testament, which has begun in the new resurrected body of Jesus. And this new creation will be consummated in the future when all God's people will participate and get their own transformed bodies. Tom Schreiner says it this way. When Jesus lived on earth as the son of David, he lived his life in the old age of the flesh, which is characterized by weakness, sin, and death. At his resurrection, however, Jesus left the old age behind and inaugurated the new age of the Spirit. The important thing here, and I know this, this might be a little confusing, but 
the important thing to understand is that isn't the case that he became God's eternal son at the resurrection. He's always been God, the eternal son of God the Father. But it wasn't until he took on flesh as the human Jesus and was resurrected that he could be installed in this position as the promised son of God in power. We saw this at the end of Matthew, which importantly, this was after his resurrection. Remember what he tells his disciples. All authority has been given to me, given to me, the human Jesus. He has a new function as Messiah King, all authority because of his resurrection. We see this in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. As a result of Jesus' resurrection, God has made him both Lord and Christ. When Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, he said, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That man, of course, is Jesus, appointed to be the judge of the world. This function that was reserved for this special man, the son of God in power. Paul says in Philippians that Jesus has been given the name above every name. And that name is Lord, Yahweh. What a person. Jesus is both Lord, the God of the universe, the eternal Son, and now he's the Son of God in power. The human Messiah fulfilling the promises about David's descendant by defeating sin and death in his resurrection, and he will reign as king forever in the new age. What a one-of-a-kind person at the center of this gospel. You know, I mentioned we spent last year at Orchard in the book of Matthew where we learned a lot about the teachings of Jesus. And all those teachings, everything Jesus said, of course, is important, isn't it? But I want you to note, the gospel is not about what Jesus said. It's about what he did. He died in the flesh for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, and he rose from the dead in victory. And that means everything as it relates to our salvation And as it relates to his rule, there is no gospel without Jesus Christ. Now let's consider number five, the power of the gospel. End of verse four. The son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace. Stop there. I want you to consider with me the wake of destruction from Adam's sin. Just look at the mess out there and look at the mess in here and be honest. Most poignantly, of course, death itself is a fruit of the fall. As we read in the book of Genesis after Adam's sin, we see that oft-repeated phrase over and over again, person after person, and he died, and he died, and he died. Not only death, though, but every kind of pain and brokenness and misery. None of that was a part of the original creation. But it has dominated mankind ever since. Just look on the news. Look all around us. Look over the tears of history. And look honestly into the recesses of your own heart. It will be very obvious this cursed devastation from man's decision to go his own way apart from God. And death is inescapable because of sin. 
Jesus took the sin of humanity upon himself and bore that judgment, that curse, as we considered in our first service, in our place on the cross. Now consider the incredible power of the resurrection, a dramatic reversal. He's overcome sin and death. The revolution has begun. Verse 4, the age of the Holy Spirit is now here. There's power in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, for as a man, as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus in his resurrection marks the beginning of this next phase when he is now making everything new. As Lloyd-Jones has said, I've used this quote before, but it's so good. The entire history of humanity can be summarized by two events. What happened because of Adam and what happened and will happen because of Jesus Christ. There is resurrection power in what Jesus has done. And that power is available to us in the Holy Spirit by grace. We see that word here, and we see it throughout this letter and throughout Paul's writings. Forgiveness of sins, victory over death, eternal life, peace with God, restoration of a life-giving eternal relationship with our Creator, all by grace. It comes as a gift. Unmerited favor, nothing that anyone deserves. Remember, by default, we are enemies of God, spiritually dead and helpless, and we await judgment. Paul writes elsewhere in, first, in uh, Ephesians 2, those familiar words, for by grace you've been saved from God's wrath through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This grace is mind-blowing. One commentator writes this, only when grace is recognized to be incomprehensible is it grace. He continues, if we think we understand God's love and grace, we probably don't have it. We see throughout Romans and all of Paul's letters, Paul's gratefulness to God for his grace. He knew he didn't deserve it. As Barnhouse says, Paul could never forget the pit from which he had been dug. Brother or sister, I hope we never forget the pit from which we have been dug. Barnhouse tells of a legend that was told as a, a sort of a fable in, in France about a young man who was dearly loved by his mother, but the young man had fallen into immorality with a sinful woman who had managed to gain his full devotion. And the mother pleaded with her son to withdraw from this wicked relationship that was destroying him. But this evil woman had manipulated the young man and convinced him that his mother was the enemy. And she convinced him further that in order to prove his love for her, his mother needed to be killed. So the legend goes that in a drunken stupor, this man rushed into his mother's house and brutally murdered her, even cutting out her heart as proof of his wickedness. But as he rushed out, he stumbled and fell, and the mother's bleeding heart cried out, my son, are you hurt? Barnhouse says that's the kind of love God has shown us 
in the gospel. We wanted nothing to do with him. We wanted to follow our own selfish, evil desires. We even killed him on a cross. And even then, most poignantly then, he loved us. His love and grace in the gospel is powerful and incomprehensible, is it not? But you must not only know about this gospel, you must experience it personally, which is number six in your outline. Who are the people of the gospel? End of verse five. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Schreiner says, if Jesus is God's true son, then membership in the people of God depends on being rightly related to Jesus. So, how do we become rightly related to Jesus? Paul writes what is needed in verse 5, the obedience of faith. Now, because uh, normally we think about those two words, don't we, as separate, obedience and faith, because Paul makes it clear later in, in this letter and in his other writings that we're saved from God's judgment by his grace alone, through faith alone. Not by trusting in our own obedience. Only by trusting or leaning fully on Jesus' death for our sins and his resurrection. Only through that faith can we be rightly related to Jesus. But Paul is also very clear in this letter and elsewhere that our obedience matters. It's not the ground of our salvation, but it is necessary evidence that we belong to Christ, which is another important phrase in verse 6. The people of the gospel are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's the language of slave and master, as Paul has already described himself. So, most scholars see two things communicated here in the obedience of faith. And both of those things are important. First, we need to obey the command to put our faith in the Lord Jesus for our salvation. That's one element. But more importantly, I think, There's an obedience to Jesus that comes from our faith. This obedience is not a second condition of salvation, but it's an important assurance that you are saved. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he is your new master to trust and obey. As Moose says, these two words, obedience and faith, are mutually interpreting. They're two sides of the same coin. They should be distinguished, but they should never be separated. Obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. When you have true faith in Christ, it results in reorienting your entire life around Jesus and obeying him as your master. As Bonhoeffer said, only the believing obey, and only the obedient believe. And even after that great passage we read earlier from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he makes this clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Obedience necessarily flows from legitimate faith. It has to, or that faith isn't real. One of the ways I think people can get confused about this today is when we think about that imagery of a gift. Paul says salvation is a gift of God. It's not 
something we earn, but something we receive, like a gift by grace. However, you should not have in your mind some anonymous person leaving a gift on your doorstep, and you open the door, take the gift, open it, and receive it without any relationship with or obligation to the giver. That picture is completely foreign to what Paul's talking about with a gift. Frankly, it's a dangerous idea that's crept into the church relatively recently. When, what Paul has in mind, when we receive this gift, we enter into a covenant with the giver. It's a new covenant in Christ. He's purchased us out of slavery, and he becomes our new master and Lord. We have a blessed relationship with him of love and grace, but not a relationship without obligation. We belong to Jesus. We reorient our lives around Jesus and his word. Every decision we now make is through the grid of his infallible word and commandments to us. As we saw in Matthew, people experienced the love of, and grace of Jesus, but they needed to abandon all other loyalties and give their full allegiance to him, didn't they? Reorient their lives around him. Remember, he was the treasure that they need to give up everything they have in order to possess. Remember at the very end of Matthew, in that great commission, Jesus instructs them to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, the people of the gospel are disciples of Jesus. They have put their faith and trust in him and what he's done for them on the cross in his resurrection for eternal life, and they seek to both understand and obey everything he's commanded because, verse 6, they belong to him. He is Lord, sovereign over everything, and he is king, and we bow the knee to his every command. One commentator says it this way. When Paul thinks of Jesus as Lord, he thinks of himself as a slave and of the world as being called to obedience to Jesus' lordship. Paul is not offering people a new religious option, but summoning them to allegiance to Jesus, which will mean abandoning all other loyalties. The gospel issues a command, an imperial summons. The appropriate response is obedience. The people of the gospel put their faith in Jesus alone for their salvation and they obey him alone as their Lord. Finally, what is the purpose of the gospel? End of verse five again, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. It's not about you. Let me say that again. It's not about you. It's for the sake of his name among the nations, all the nations. The ultimate goal is not just bringing about people into obedience of faith. It's not just about bringing Gentiles into the people of God. The ultimate goal is for the glory of Jesus Christ. It is for the sake of his name among all the nations. Lloyd-Jones says this, quote, Here I'm talking to Christian people, to believers, when we talk to one another, are we always talking about some experience or some blessing we had? Or are we talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? He continues, I have no hesitation in asserting that as we grow in grace, 
we talk much less about ourselves and our experiences and much more about him, end quote. The ultimate purpose of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is glorified and his name be magnified throughout the world. You and I can be blessed eternally, and I pray you are, by being a part of the people of God, people of the gospel. You'll either acknowledge his lordship now in your salvation, or you will acknowledge him later in your condemnation. But either way, Christ will be glorified and all glory goes to him. The gospel of God brings about the worship of Jesus. So as we close, let me just summarize what we've seen in the opening seven verses of this letter. Paul's gospel is good news from God, promised in the Old Testament, centered on Jesus, especially his death and resurrection, designed to bring people from everywhere to the obedience of faith in him, transforming forever everyone who believes by the power of his grace, all for the sake of Jesus' name and his glory. Over the next seven months or so, we will be expounding on all Paul has to say about this, and I pray it will be both a challenge to you and a blessing to you. Today is the last Sunday of January, which is, of course, the first month of the year. January was named after the Roman god Janus. And the image of this pagan god has two faces on one head, one facing backward to the past and one facing forward into the future. And January was named accordingly as the month of new beginnings, of transitions. You look back at the previous year, as you transition to looking forward to the new year. The past should inform the future. In 1969, an investment company was founded here in Colorado named Janus. And they used this head with two faces as its logo, marketing this idea that looking into the past will help you look forward as you invest in the future. Though with any investment, you're always reminded, aren't you, of that disclaimer that past performance is no guarantee of future results. That's a common refrain, isn't it? Past performance is no guarantee of future results unless God is the one who performs it. You see that that disclaimer doesn't apply when God performs something in the past. His past performance of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection absolutely guarantees future life with him for all believers, all people of the gospel. In fact, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we do this, don't we? We face backward to the past at what he accomplished and then face forward to what his accomplishment guarantees for our future when we will be with him forever. What a great promise to those who belong to Jesus. I wonder if you belong to him today. Can you claim this promise? To do so, you must give your life to him. Turn over everything to him in obedience of faith, trusting in him and his performance in the past on your behalf so that his power over sin and death will become yours. This is your greatest need as a human being. And the only solution is the gospel of God, a gospel that's all about Jesus.
that he might receive worship and praise and honor among the nations. So I close with the words of Paul at the very end of this letter that we embark on. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand as we close? Our Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ who changed everything. Lord, I just pray specifically for those listening now who are still relying on their own achievements, are still lost and need to be found. May they bend the knee to Jesus today as their Lord, as their King. May they trust in his achievement alone for their salvation in his glorious death and resurrection on their behalf, all for the glory of your name. Amen.